If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 681. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. If you are watching on YouTube, click on that little super thanks button under the video if you like it. Send a few pennies my way that way. Of course, a great way to support the show is to go to McClanahanAcademy.com. You've already heard about that, but get that free class when you go. 10 Myths of American History, and make sure you purchase a class or 20 there that keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also click on the support tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way that way, or you can go to Anchor.fm and subscribe there. You can support the show that way financially, or click on the shop tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. As always, though, a great way to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. What do you want to hear? That's a great way to do it because, of course, it keeps the podcast fresh. And this is a listener-generated episode. So, again, you send me show requests, I talk about them. This stems from a social media post someone asked me about. And it had to do with the January 6th situation. Why are so many people still rotting in jail at this point? And I flippantly said, well, it's because the... Uh, writ of habeas corpus has been suspended since 2012. Now, the two things are actually unrelated. I'll say that. Um, I was saying it just to point out a fact that uh, habeas corpus has not been enforced uh, for for a variety of crimes, most importantly, political opposition, I think, since 2012. And this was actually litigated and it's really interesting, and people don't realize this. And I and I say it because when you go back to uh, the 1860s, the last class I did at, at McClanahan Academy was on the Copperheads, and how many people were arrested. Uh, you know, Mark Neely actually did a, a, a book on this, and um, the original estimate was around 13,000 people were arrested in the 1860s in the North for opposition to the Lincoln administration. What he found is it was many times higher than that, as much as 200% higher than that. And so when you think about that, 200%, maybe more, you're talking about, what, 30,000 people? that were arrested for political opposition to the Lincoln administration? That is a huge number. And what we're seeing now is the potential for that kind of thing to happen again. We're seeing with the the defendants in the January 6th situation, and many of them have been charged, right? They're arrested and charged. So what habeas corpus means is that you can arrest somebody and hold them indefinitely without ever charging them with anything. Now, I don't know how many people that actually applied to with January 6th. I think most were charged. And what habeas corpus means, it's a Latin term for show, bring me the body, right? Produce the body. So if you're arrested and habeas corpus has been suspended, you don't have to be, you don't have to produce, go before a judge, right? You can just be thrown in jail and they can throw it, lock you up and throw away the key. That's the whole point. So I want to talk about the suspension of habeas corpus in 2012. Now, this was done legally. The Congress did it and the president signed it into law. It was not done by the president directly. That's the main difference between the suspension of habeas corpus by the Lincoln administration in 1861 and what Congress did in 2012. But this is one of the few civil liberties that's actually outlined in the Constitution. It's in the document. 
It's not something that we have to create out of thin air. It's not something that had to be uh, added in the Bill of Rights. The writ of habeas corpus is in the Constitution because the founding generation thought this is one of the most important civil liberties you can have. And it goes all the way back to the Magna Carta in 1215. The idea is that the king or the government cannot arrest you and hold you indefinitely for political crimes. Essentially, that's what happened here. And again, I have to note that the most important speech is protected by the Bill of Rights is political speech. It should be. That is the most important speech. Now, it doesn't mean there can't be repercussions, uh, you know, private repercussions for what you do. But political speech is the most important thing that can be protected by that. And unfortunately, it's one of the few areas of free speech that's not a protected class of speech when it comes to things like the EEOC and others. You can't say all kinds of things in your employment, but uh, because you could be you know, fired for saying these things. But political speech is not protected. It's not a protected class of speech. Um, so, I mean, this is, again, this is something that's been litigated. It's, it's interesting. You know? So, uh, for example, uh, a company can terminate you for wearing a Trump shirt into, uh, you know, into your employment if somebody finds that offensive or they don't like it. Or they, they can tell you not to wear that Trump shirt. Right. And if you refuse to do it, they can they can fire you for that. Or it could be, you know, the Biden shirt. Right. You wear you're in a really deep red state and you wear your Biden shirt into the office and people get ticked off and you don't stop doing it. So they let you go. They can do that. They can do that if it's if it's a protected class, you know, religion, sex, uh, race, you know, things like that. Um, so they, they can't get rid of you for that. But political speech, which is what the First Amendment is designed to protect, if we just want to say, we're going to incorporate the Bill of Rights, right? We're going to go along with that. Well, because it's been done, but political speech is not part of that. So this is, this is one of the more interesting parts of all of this, and I think one of the more dangerous things, because, again, political speech should be the first class of speech that's protected if we're going to use the Bill of Rights uh, in any way to protect anything. And then habeas corpus of course, which is you have to produce the body. If you are arrested, you have to be charged with a crime, and then you have to have a speedy trial. The question about why we don't have speedy trials, it's a very good question from the listener on social media. Why are some of these people rotting in prison 18 months later? The only answer I can give on that is that there's a backlog of cases. I mean, this, there, we're approaching 900 people that have been arrested and uh, it's a backlog, and we know that there's one, I think, Trump-appointed judge that's let a couple people go, but most are facing pretty long sentences. And one of the other things, of course, that has been pointed out on social media is that uh, this, this happened in Wisconsin, right? And the Wisconsin State House was occupied by Democrats, and not one person uh, was arrested or charged with any type of insurrection or anything in that case. So, we have uneven application of justice in these particular cases, these two cases. One, because, and it's all about politics, right? The one that in Wisconsin, these people were protected, and in the U.S. Capitol situation, they weren't. But I do want to talk about the suspension of habeas corpus, because this does have a far-reaching effect on free speech in America. And this was done in 2012, and it's been re-verified, reaffirmed since 2012. So for 10 years... The Congress has left the suspension of habeas corpus in place, uh, and this uh, could have an impact. And uh, some journalists have said it has had an impact on how they write about 
things like WikiLeaks or things like terrorism, whatever it is. I mean, they believe they can't say things because it could be seen as uh, support for uh, these kind of, uh, uh, you know, it could be, uh, you know, anti-government activities, right? So is WikiLeaks anti-government activities? Uh, these are big questions. Um, so uh, this suspension of habeas corpus, and this was done by the Obama administration. Not, I mean, this is Barack Obama's administration that did this, signed it into law. They wanted it. And uh, I think that's a fascinating caveat to all of this. You know, all the lefties that run around say Obama was protecting our civil liberties. Obama, great record on Obama had a terrible record on civil liberties. Um, and every president since Obama has had a terrible record on civil liberties because they've all agreed with this reauthorization of the suspension of habeas corpus through the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. It happened in 2012. Most people missed it. There actually was a case that uh, appeared before circuit courts, and a circuit court uh, issued an injunction against it, said you can't do this, and then a, a, an appellate court said, no, no, we're going back, you can do this, and the Supreme Court refused to hear it. This was 2014. So the Supreme Court says, we're not going to hear about this, it's no big deal, Congress can suspend habeas corpus, essentially, and they did it. Now again, if you take the Copperheads class, I get into the long history of this, through speeches, by the Democrats in the 1860s pointing out the problem with the presidential suspension of habeas corpus. And it was supposed to be, uh, the, the president was never supposed to have that power. Of course, Lincoln did it. Jefferson Davis also did it in the Confederacy, which was uh, a highly controversial move there. And so you had uh, both presidents acting illegally during that time period, um, at least ostensibly. Uh, though you could say that the Congress in the Confederacy uh, acted first, right? So um, that's that's the other situation. Uh, the, the Congress can do it. Congress could have suspended habeas corpus if they wanted to. That's always a power of the Congress. It's in the it's in uh, the legislative powers, not the executive powers. And that was always the question. Uh, what the Congress did uh, in the 1860s was indemnify the president. They passed legislation after the fact saying the president can do this. And of course, that was a major problem. But let's get into this piece that appeared in The Nation, right? This is a left-wing uh, publication. The Nation, on January 4th, 2012, January 4th, 2012, Alexander Cockburn, who was a, a leftist. But I mean, this was, the title of this piece is Obama and the Indefinite Detention of U.S. Citizens. Subtitle, with the signing of the National Defense Authorization Act, the president has brought Guantanamo-style justice to the United States. Now, there was a time a decade ago when leftists were really concerned about civil liberties. I'm not so certain that's the case anymore. This is a leftist. Cockburn is not a, is not a right-winger. And uh, people were concerned about the effect this could have on free speech. Because the ultimate goal, I mean, first, the, 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 the bill itself targeted uh, terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and, and, and the Taliban. But it could be used against U.S. citizens who were seen, a very vague definition of this, it's very vague, who could be uh, seen as having some type of um, uh, uh, support for these organizations. And, and I, you can read, if you read the, the section, which is uh, section 1021B2, um, it's uh, if the <coughs> U.S. citizens be taken into custody on suspicion of providing substantial support. 
on suspicion of providing substantial supports. What does that actually mean? Suspicion of, of providing. So the, the term suspicion is important. And this goes all the way back to the 1860s. Because in the 1860s, you could be arrested on suspicion. And not, I mean, it, that's, that's dangerous, right? There's no evidence there. It's just suspicion of providing substantial support. So a journalist that writes a story about, say, WikiLeaks, and is, uh, it can be seen as pro-WikiLeaks, for example, that could be suspicion. There's suspicion here from the government that you're providing substantial support for these organizations. And so that idea of suspicion uh, was, again, this is something that happened in the 1860s. You could be arrested for suspicion of providing support for the Confederacy. And again, 30,000 people were arrested, U.S. citizens, in the North for providing suspicion. This is a dangerous thing to do. Suspicion itself, you should not be able to arrest people for suspicion. You have to have proof. Now, in the January 6th situation, I will say this, the people that are being arrested are not being arrested on suspicion. They're going through the evidence and finding, uh, well, this person was here at the Capitol, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, they're using video evidence and other things, social media evidence, whatever people, uh, you know, whatever kind of electronic trail people are providing for themselves or others for these activities. So it's not suspicion, uh, it is direct evidence. But in this case, you can be arrested and held indefinitely on suspicion. Now, that is the dangerous part, on suspicion. So let me go to the article again. Uh, Cockburn says, America changed as the New Year stumbled across the threshold, but the big shift didn't get much press, which is easy to understand. Can there be a deader news day than a New Year's Eve that falls on a weekend? Besides, alive or dead, habeas corpus has never been a topic to set editors on fire. Well, it has in the 1860s. I would disagree with Cockburn here. In the 1860s, people talked a lot about it. In, in fact, it was brought up in the Senate a lot, and the House of Representatives a lot, because they realized what this thing was going to do. The change came with the whisper of Barack Obama's pen as he signed into law the National Defense Authorization Act, the annual re, re, uh, ratification of military Keynesianism, $662 billion this time, which has been our national policy since World War II bailed out the New Deal. Again, this is amazing that Cockburn is saying this stuff, right? So the lefties for one, at one time used to, used to uh, be worried about uh, the militarization of the United States post-World War II. I, I've said this before on this podcast, but I had a political science professor as a, a lefty, as an undergraduate, who said this, you know, we've been on a military footing since World War II. We need to get that. Right? We need to get rid of that, get rid of the military footing. So there used to be that. Not so much anymore. Sacrificial offerings to the Pentagon aren't news, but this time, snugly ensconced in the NDAA, came ratification by legal statute of the exposure of U.S. citizens to arbitrary arrest without subsequent benefit of counsel and to possible torture and imprisonment, sin D. Goodbye, habeas corpus. We're talking here about citizens within the borders of the United States, not sitting in a hotel or out driving in some foreign land. In the latter case, as in the late Anwar el-Awiki's incineration in Yemen before bore witness a few months ago, the well-being or summary demise of U.S. citizens is contingent upon a secret determination of the president as to whether the aforementioned citizen is waging a war of terror on the United States. If the answer is in the affirmative, the citizen can be killed on the president's say-so without further ado. We're also most emphatically not talking about non-U.S. citizens or possibly even legal residents 
though I'd urge green card holders to file for citizenship ASAP. Non-citizens get thrown in the supermax without a prayer of having a lawyer. Under the terms of the NDA, a suspect seizure by the military's requirement if the suspect is deemed to have been substantially supporting al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or associated forces. But by the military? Until December 31, the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878 limited the powers of local governments and law enforcement agents from using federal military personnel to enforce the laws of the land. No longer. The NDAA renders the Posse Comitatus Act a dead letter. So think about what Cockburn is saying here. The military can do this. It's not just the local law enforcement. This is the military. Can, U.S. military can come in and arrest you on suspicion. This is exactly what was happening in the 1860s. Think. These, this is 2012. This is a, a you know, Democrat president. Um, and uh, we had, at that point, a Republican Congress. I believe the Republicans controlled Congress in 2012. My memory might be a little vague here, but I think they did by that point because the, the backlash of the Obama and Obamacare. Uh, but maybe the Democrats still controlled Congress in 2012, but I know Republicans had uh, their fingerprints all over this stuff. So the U.S. military, just as in the 1860s, can come in and arrest you, right? So posse comitatus, which, which forbade local governments, local law enforcement from using federal military personnel, now can use it to arrest people suspected of suspicion, right? Suspected. Suspicion can be used uh, in this case to arrest you because they think you might be doing these things. And again, it could have, it could be somebody who's a journalist, be somebody who's an activist, whatever it is. Connoisseurs of subversion and anti-terror laws well know that associated forces can mean anything. See, for example, one of the definitions of enemy combatants minted after 2001, quote, associated forces that are engaged in hostilities against the United States or its coalition partners, including any person who has committed a belligerent act or has directly supported seen hostil such hostilities in aid of such enemy forces, like those memory pillows I saw on discount on Macy's on New Year's Day, the phrase directly supported will adjust itself to the whim of any ingenious prosecutor. Obama issued a signing statement simultaneous with passing the act into law. Theoretically, he's against signing statements. <laughs> in 2001, he said, I taught the Constitution for 10 years, and I believe in the Constitution. I will obey the Constitution of the United States. We're not going to use signing statements as a way of doing an end run around Congress. But again, Obama issued them. This is where I wrote, <laughs> and I wrote nine presidents who screwed up America. Essentially, since uh, the, since the George H.W. Bush administration. We've been living in a soft monarchy. Now, you could say this goes back to Reagan, uh, but really since the, the early 90s, this is what we've had. And all the presidents are complicit in this. It doesn't matter if we're talking about H.W. Bush or Clinton or, or W. Bush or Obama or Trump or Biden. We're, they're all complicit in the last, say, 40 years practically now, 30, 30 plus years. Um, Approaching 40 years now, we've had this soft monarchy in the United States, and signing statements are certainly part of that. So Obama said he was against them, then he was for them. He was against them before he was for them, right? Actually, whether Obama may, whatever Obama may have taught, a signing statement, whether issued by Bush or Obama, doesn't have the force of law. Obama's December 31st signing statement was described was designed, I'm sorry, to soothe the liberal vote. As the president expressed, quote, serious reservations with certain provisions that regulate the detention, interrogation, and prosecution of suspected terrorists, and insisted that, by golly, he will never, quote, authorize the indefinite military detention without trial of American citizens. 
This pious language was part of a diligent White House campaign to suggest that A, there's nothing in the act to perturb citizens, but B, anything perturbing is entirely the fault of Congress, and C, Obama solemnly swears that so long as he is president, he'll never okay anything bad, whatever the NDAA might be construed as authorizing. And anyway, D, there's nothing new about the detention provisions because they merely reiterate those of the authorization for use of military force signed by Bush in 2001. So there we go. Obama's trying to say, well, look, I'm never going to do this, right? This is not me. This is Congress. And again, he's placing blame back on Congress. Now, first of all, this was a, a congressional piece of legislation, right? It wasn't done by Obama. It was done by the Congress. And that is an important caveat to make here. Okay, Congress can suspend habeas corpus. Uh, but the, the fact that they did it, was it justified in 2012? And it's it's very clear habeas corpus could only be suspended in certain situations. And those situations weren't really met by, uh, by a concept. They didn't meet the standard constitutionally as Congress did this and Obama signed it into law. So Obama is going to do an end around here at the constitution. He should have vetoed this legislation because of this part of it, because he has an obligation to protect the constitution. He didn't do it. He issues a signing statement and said, which, the idea is sort of like a line-item veto, which presidents don't have, but that's what the signing statement is supposed to be like. Well, I'm kind of vetoing this, but of course, it's already by, it's already in place, so future presidents could use it. The Trump administration could use it. The Obama administration could use it. Whoever follow, I'm sorry, the Biden administration, whoever follows Biden can use it, right? To take the last point first, the NDAA expands the 2001 law and codifies ample new powers plus new prohibitions regarding any possible removal of prisoners in Guantanamo. As for Congress, his performance was lamentable. But as Senator Carl Levin, one of the bill's co-sponsors, has convincingly inferred, the real reason the White House threatened a veto was because the bill as then drafted might have limited what the executive branch deems its present powers of indefinite detention without trial. So it could have been the president wanted more than what they were getting. This is Obama now. So he's saying this, he's signing a statement, I'm not going to but he actually wanted more indefinite detention power. Amid the mutual buck passing, what Congress and the White House uh, convived at, beating back all obstructive amendments, was the framing of cunningly vague language about the dirty work afoot. Jonathan Turley, a great champion of constitutional rights and civil liberties, puts the trickery in a nutshell. Quote, The exemption for American citizens from the mandatory detention requirement is a screening language for the next section, which offers no exemption for American citizens from the authorization to use the military to indefinitely detain people without charge or trial. Emphasis in the original. So he, he emphasized mandatory. That's the heart of the matter. And in ambiguity, we can see certainty. The writ of habeas corpus can now be voided at the whim of a president, whether it be Obama reversing himself on the personal pledges and his signing statements or any successor, as can the Sixth Amendment's right to counsel one day, perhaps soon, the Supreme Court will rule on the act's constitutionality, which they didn't. They decided against doing that. For now, the, as ACLU Director Anthony Romero said after the signing, Obama, quote, will forever be known as a president who signed indefinite detention without charge or trial into law. America is an empire on which the sun never sets, and so, appropriately, the statute applies across the planetary battlefield that constitutes the Great War on Terror. Now, again... This is written by a leftist. And he cites Jonathan Turley, who is uh, always looking out for civil liberty situations, right? Turley is, is very strong on civil liberties. And in fact, 
Uh, there is a, if you go out on YouTube and you look at Jonathan Turley, Turley Abraham Lincoln, you'll find that there was a conference that was given where Turley was extremely hard on Lincoln for the suspension of habeas corpus and civil liberties abuses during the war. Um, I find that fascinating. Again, I mean, Turley, who's voted for Obama, I mean, Turley is not a conservative, but he is rock solid on civil liberties in the Constitution. And that's the kind of leftists you actually need in America. Um, these people that understand that the progressives are nasty when it comes to civil liberties. They always have been. Uh, progressives have never been very good at protecting those things. They always look at them as an obstacle to their success because they know that if people can actually go out there and speak out freely against these things, nobody's going to want this stuff, right? So you've got to get your political opponents out of the way, and progressives are very good about doing that. I mean, this is certainly clear through the presidents we've had that have been progressives, and Obama's one of them. So uh, I like this piece by Cockburn. I mean, this is really, really good. Um, and, be, and this is 2012. This is a decade old. And this is in The Nation, right? This is in a left-wing publication, The Nation, criticizing the Obama administration for doing horrible things. And uh, Jonathan Turley was correct about it in 2012. So as we look at you know political speech and the suspension of habeas corpus and opposition to the government, whether it's from the left or the right, these are things that should always be upheld as being vital to a healthy democracy, right? You cannot have republicanism with a lowercase r. You cannot have democratic participation from the population, whatever, however we define that, without having effective free speech and without having the ability for the public, without repercussion, to say things that could be against the government, not just against your next-door neighbor who's flying their uh, the Trump or Biden flag, and you don't like that, but against the government itself. I mean, you know, individual free speech as well and certain things should also be protected, political speech. We shouldn't, there shouldn't be any opposition to that. Uh, and this is something that should be the most important class of, of speech to be protected. But regardless, we know because of 2012, we've got indefinite detention. No trial, no lawyer. <clears throat> it's there. And it's been reauthorized every year since 2012. Doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. They all believe in this stuff even if they say they don't. All right. So that was asked, what about this thing? Nobody heard about this before. Well, here you go. I wanted to cover it for that reason. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.